you do have to have some tolerance for critters sure. for biological control right, right. <laughs> like uh we have swallows swallows that make nests all over everything in the summer and they're great at keeping down all the flies and everything but you have right. to have tolerance for the barn swallows and them right. messing up the side of the house where they're where they're making their nest and stuff Right, right. That's a they, that's a good reason to have metal, a metal building. You just hose it down. Yeah. <laughs> and be, and be all, you'll be all fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to the Idea to Impact podcast, where we are talking to faculty, inventors, and entrepreneurs, and bringing you their stories of uh, experience with commercialization and technology transfer. This is episode uh, with Dr. Larry Gripping. It's part two of his episode. And in today's podcast, we are gonna talk more about Dr. Gripping's research, his experience with the i program and with his Innovation X grant that is helping to teach students not only about the research he's doing with herbicides and biology, but also teaching them about commercialization and how that process works. Let's get started. And for those that are, st are listening from the beginning, um, you know, we're talking about um, we're talking about various. Uh, he contributed to many fields of natural philosophy or science back then, um, and uh, you know, you're able to discover this, and I think you even published on this this portrait. Uh, is that correct? And um, but and then taking taking that now to what you're you're currently working on because i found this also very fa fascinating uh into ways of i don't know if it's getting rid of weeds or is it making sure that weeds never start um and it's an entirely uh non-toxic way of doing it i believe is that correct right right so what's the layman's uh, explanation that i probably got wrong there no, that's right. So uh, we have different kinds of herbicides out there. We have herbicides that you spray on a plant like glyphosate or Roundup, the plant dies. Yeah. You know, it's just like, yeah. it's a really potent herbicide. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of the plants are becoming resistant to it. So um, uh, that's evolution. Right. <laughs> and right. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, also there's questions about um, its sa safety. Uh, there's a, there, there's some worry about uh, the safety of glyphosate or maybe the carrier that glyphosate is in or something like that. And in fact, both glyphosate and dicamba have been outlawed by the European Union. And so th these are important herbicides used to really reduce the number of weeds out there. And both of dicamba is like a, an analog of a plant hormone. And when you spray it on it, the plant just goes hormone wild and dies. Whereas the uh, glyphosate, inhibits the process of photosynthesis and so it dies because it can't photosynthesize anymore so you you starve it the the, the latter one and the other one just is like a bodybuilder on steroids and then the yeah. muscles blow up or something like that or <laughs> yeah it becomes hormonally imbalanced totally yeah. hormonally and doesn't okay. know where to grow out anymore and gotcha. that kind of stuff okay. so um Back in the day, uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, people have been looking for herbicides, you know, nice, effective herbicides that don't hurt people, mm -hmm. you know, 
And uh, there are a bunch of herbicides out there. Uh, an, an example is uh, our, and they often work at a subcellular level. So the microtubules inside a cell is kind of the cytoskeleton, the skeleton inside a cell. Mm. Um, the microtubules are in plants and they're also in animals, but the microtubules in plants are sensitive to drugs that plant microtubules aren't sensitive to. And so one of the herbicides, for instance, is a microtubule depolymerizing agent. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's, an, that, that's one mode of action of herbicides that's out there. And a lot of them target uh, other things that are particularly unique to plants. So one of the things that's particularly unique to plants uh, is, our sterol, is their sterol composition. So sterols are all of those uh, kind of um, um, uh, fatty components that are in the membranes of cells that help to regulate the function of the cells. And we know about it because if we get cholesterol in our, in our uh, arteries, it builds up a fatty deposit there mm. and it causes uh, arthrosclerosis, so the blockage of the, of the blood vessels. And so if we're not able to take up uh, the cholesterol that we eat, then we get hardening of the arteries. And so if you look at the cereal boxes in your pantry, you'll see that it says, oh, no cholesterol <laughs> in there. It's not true. There's just a little bit of cholesterol in plants. And there's low enough concentration so that the FDA can let them say that there's no cholesterol in there. But there's, so there's other, other sterols that are unique to plants. And so people for a long time, uh, you know, ever since the 60s or so, have been interested in thinking there's a way to inhibit the synthesis of sterols in plants so that they don't grow as, as an herbicide. And um, they found a whole bunch of chemicals that inhibit the synthesis of uh, sterols, and they all have a disastrous effect on plant growth, but they also have a disastrous effect, or in some cases, a beneficial effect uh, on, on animals in very low concentrations. So statins, which are taken to lower your cholesterol, were originally identified as an herbicide. Oh, ah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, um, the, so can is an effective herbicide, but it also affects our cholesterol metabolism. We don't want a whole bunch of statins out there. It's also really expensive. So what you want is something that's really low expensive, expense that can specifically address that single important growth component of plants. And so what we discovered was we were interested in how sterols get into plants originally. And we we're looking at membrane contact sites, the contact sites between different organelles that make them all talk to each other. This yeah. is a new area. And it's really exciting because people often thought that the mitochondria did mitochondria things and the chloroplast did a chloroplast thing and the peroxisome did a peroxisome thing and the ER did an ER thing. And it was all separate. But it turns out that it's all connected. Uh -huh. <laughs> Not surprising, but uh, right. th there you are. And so um, we found that the connection between the plasma membrane and this membrane system inside the cell called the endoplasmic reticulum is a place where sterols can get out from outside the cell to inside the cell. But in order to do those experiments, we had to figure out a way to deliver the sterol to the plant. Mm. And people in the past had been doing that just by dissolving the sterol in ethanol and then adding it with a lot of stirring to, 
to uh, a solution. But we found that that doesn't get the sterol in. <laughs> that just doesn't work. And so when we discovered how to get sterols in, we thought, oh, we could also solve another important problem that people have had in this area of science, which is people realize that if you had mutations in the biosynthetic, in the biosynthetic sequence leading to sterols, you got really severely dwarfed and non-germinating plants, okay? okay? Now, if, if, if that's truly just in that biosynthetic pathway of just the sterols, presumably you could add back the sterols to it and it should make it go, be normal, mm -hmm. right? So a test of whether you're getting the sterols into the plant in this case would be whether or not you can uh, chemically reverse these mutations. And we found that we could. Wow. But the other side of that, we did this all in just one, experiment one petri dish it was great we had uh, a mutant growing actually not not growing we added a little bit of sterile to it in our special solubilization agent to get it in and it completely reversed the growth it was looked normal wow but then as we increased the sterile concentration the mutation looked like it came back huh. it was so weird and so I, I didn't know what was going on there. And what we found is that when we added these sterols to plants, all of these symptoms of mutations in the pathway appeared. And it turned out when we actually measured the sterols inside the plant, that by adding this higher concentration of sterols outside the plant, it cut off all of the biosynthesis of the sterols by the plant. It was just like causing mutation in the pathway. So there is a feedback inhibition by these sterols on the growth of plants and, and, and or on the production of sterols. So even though we were adding a whole bunch of sterols outside, their sterile concentration was actually going down. And that's the basis for this discovery. And so it's a very basic um, biological uh, discovery, but it has this amazing potential influence on how it could help people. And that is that it, 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 uh, the sterols, these plant sterols are often used in gram quantities for people to um, lower their own cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And uh, yet you can, and so you could put it on the soils and it would break down and it would be completely non-toxic. So as a, a researcher, you know, I tend to think, okay, you've discovered this new, we'll call it technology, this new um, herbicide. I used to think that that's where it stops. You know, like, okay, we've got this great discovery. You publish a paper on it, you get recognized for it. But then there is this whole other side of it, especially when you're working at a university, because the university um, you technically owns this discovery. So then you you take further now you're trying to commercialize it, right? You're trying to do something, not just have it be this great discovery, but now you're trying to get it out into the world and let it have some impact, right? Right. And so actually, this was kind of a side project. Uh, I wasn't getting funding from any place other than the, just the biology department on this. So we didn't have like National Science Foundation funding for it or USDA funding or any of these kinds of things, which is kind of rare, mm. but it was completely university funding that uh, provide us, provided us with a, a material that we needed to do to make the discovery. And so I made a invention disclosure to the um, technology group there. 
And um, then they looked at it uh, and uh, we talked about whether we should patent it. And uh, we started looking at prior art, as they say, of whether uh, these discoveries had been patented before. And we didn't find anything. And so, it, and so uh, a year ago, I um, made a provisional patent to uh, the US patent uh, uh, group. Office. And uh, um, then we extended that just this year to an international provisional patent. Mm. So we're, uh, we have it protected the sense in the sense that we have a while to prove its effect while we have it as provisional. So mm -hmm. we're now doing field tests on it to see what we can do to um, um, establish its, its uh, 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 effectiveness out there in the field. So we talked about two different uses of your discovery. One was as an herbicide, which uh, folks in the in the agricultural industries would be very interested in. And then there was also, you talked about people taking it in gram quantities to reduce their own cholesterol. Is this the same thing we're talking about for two different uses, this patent? Or are-, are Yeah, we doing so we, we didn't patent anything that had to do with nutri nutrient supplements. Gotcha. One of, one of the problems is that um, uh, that's already been, nutrient supplements is kind of old news. So you can go down to the local store, to the local nutrient supplement place and buy plant sterols and, and take those. The problem with it is that again, um, and they even use some of the same uh, mix that we have in order to get sterols in, but um, it's fairly unregulated. It's fairly cheap. Mm. And so, so it's not a drug. It doesn't have the same kind of uh, drug uh, um, right. uh, uh, requirements uh, that are necessary for, uh, but that's the other nice thing about this discovery is that because it's non-toxic and not a, really a drug, um, we don't have to get it uh, uh, analyzed and uh, approved by the Environmental Protection Agency. So the EPA step is a huge step, a huge hurdle that oh, yeah. normal herbicides have to overcome and we don't have to do that. Uh, there's so many uh, you know, alphabet agency regulations that we've talked to other people about from you know, definitely the FDA, EPA, um, that we're taking them more Years. than a decade. Right, I mean, year, dozen years or more, uh, just before they could start really looking at commercial applications, they were still in trials. So that's a huge advantage. And if I'm in this, if I so if I'm in the in, ag industry, let's say I grow cotton because cotton is a big thing around here in, in yeah. the politician area. Um, why? What benefits would would your uh, technology give me that maybe I wasn't already getting or uh, whether it's a direct benefit or an indirect benefit, because I get the non-toxicity oh. of it. Yeah, so it would be a direct benefit because um, for um, we haven't we haven't tested it with lots of cotton plants yet, but okay. conceivably it would actually be cheaper for them to use this to keep the weeds down before they plant cotton. Okay. 
than the current herbicides they use. So they currently use pre-emergent herbicides, but they're kind of expensive. And what we're trying to do right now is make a formulation of it so that it lasts a long time. They don't want to go out and spray their crops over the winter several times right. in order to keep right. the weeds right. down. The weeds don't actually grow that much during the winter, but they don't want to do a lot of spraying in the winter, of course. And so we're trying to figure out the formulation that would be best for that. And that's probably the biggest challenge we have right now is working on the formulation. But getting back to the cotton farmer, we figure we could probably get it down to $10 an acre. And they're currently paying like on the order of $150, $200 an acre for their oh, herbicides. Yeah. So we a have a considerable cheap, yeah. yeah, it's a lot cheaper. So glyphosate is $5 an acre. But the problem with glyphosate these days is that it isn't the glyphosate that costs the cotton farmer money. Right. What costs the cotton farmer money is the glyphosate resistant seed that buyer sells now. That's really expensive. <laughs> right. And so that's actually one of the nice things about this. Um, uh, uh, using an endogenous chemical that's already in the plant and just having it feed back on the uh, uh, biosynthetic pathways for these, it's probably going to be difficult for them to acquire resistance to it. So it, 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 there probably will ultimately be some resistance to it, but it, it might just require more or a slightly different uh, sterol or something like that. But uh, uh, since it's such an integral part of their um, uh, regulation right. uh, of, of growth, um, just adding this sterile to, to inhibit the whole sterile biosynthetic sequence might, might be um, hard to uh, uh, overcome. What we're working on in the lab now is, uh, like I said, we we're interested in sterile transport. One way that they could become resistant to it is if they blocked sterile from getting into the cell, from them being able to sense it. And so we need to figure out what the transport system is and how easy that would be for the plant to change. Yeah. And going that back to kind of the, you know, the, the, the kindergarten version of this, if you're putting it into the soil, it's not going to negatively affect the cotton, right? The cotton's still going to grow well? It will, it will affect, actually, it affects small seeded things the most, which are mostly weeds. Okay. So it affects all these small, the bigger seeded things are a little more resistant to it because they probably have a little bit more sterile in their seed to rely upon when they germinate. Okay. So um, uh, cotton has a big seed, corn has a big seed, beans have a big seed. So all of those things are a little more resistant to it. But the main thing is that because it's a natural product, it's almost the way I view it is it's almost like the active ingredient in mulch. You know, when you add mulch to a garden, things don't grow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it isn't just because it's covering up these little seeds and they can't poke their way out. There's an inhib an, inib an active inhibition going on there. Hmm. And, and it, this sterile might be part of that. I mean, that hasn't been proved yet, but it, it would be easy for it to be that. And um, so consequently, we think that this sterol, when it uh, um, gets into the soil, is broken down fairly rapidly. So mulch only works for a, sh uh, a short time. And then uh, why is because it get, the, the active ingredients gets broken down. So the arthropods in the soil, the little bugs, uh, tend to 
need to plant sterols and break them down and uh, that kind of thing. So we're also interested, one of the main things that we're asking money for now through granting agencies and whatnot is doing a chemical analysis of the soils to look at the rate of breakdowns of these, uh, of these sterols to see how long they last in the soil. So getting back to the cotton question, if you put it on, this is true for all pre-emergent herbicides, you put it on, they last for a while before they get washed away or broken down or bound to the clay particles or whatever it happens to them. And then you can go in and plant your crop again. I see. There's a certain time. And so we're looking at that time window right now when our herbicide would be best related to when you plant uh, the cotton. And then the good thing about this thing, this herbicide that we have, is that once the plant gets about that big, once it gets like a couple inches tall, you can add the herbicide, you can add the sterile, and it has no effect on plant growth. Aye, I see. Okay. So you could wait for your cotton to grow a little ways. And actually cotton and a lot of the other plants, since this is a completely organic, one of the major uh, markets for this would be in cannabis production uh, or organic um, uh, crops, uh, vineyards, uh, trees, but the immersion crop for this is cannabis. And once you get a cannabis canopy, you know, where the, the leaves are shading the right. background, they don't grow weeds. There's uh, not, not a weed problem. And so what you want to do is be able to inhibit the weeds after they get, after they grow a little ways. Yeah. And then you could, you, could, you could put this on the plant. It would keep the weeds from growing before the plant got big enough to actually shade itself so that it didn't have any more weeds. Yeah. There's an old parable about the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds growing up together, but you can actually now make it so that the weeds don't grow with the yeah. weed, so to speak, right? That's pretty cool. Which could be really important now with this last election cycle, a lot of other states have legalized marijuana. And so that's a whole other topic, podcast topic is just how much that industry is growing and the opportunities that are going to come out of um, the legalization, you know? Right, right. Yeah, in organic, organic crops, um, it kind of depends on the level of mechanization they have out there. But uh, people will spend $300,000 an acre just getting rid of their weeds. Wow. And as I mentioned, we can probably manufacture this thing at $10 an acre. And so we'll probably price it a little higher because the value to the farmer will be a little bit more. Absolutely. But um, the uh, uh, um, possibility of making a profit on this for Texas A&M and for us, um, the company that I made is Griffin Biologics, um, uh, is pretty good. The, the, the profit margin will probably be pretty good. So speaking of that, um, it sounds like uh, from what I read, you did an i project to get gripping biology started to get this technology to get some customer feedback talk about the icor process for you yeah that was really good we really enjoyed doing that and we were really lucky we had the last icor before the lockdowns wow. so we had it up in dallas uh in uh february okay this is this year then yeah 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 and so um we did 150 interviews of uh, people at all levels of uh, um, the business 
that's the cool thing about ICOR is they tell you to get out the building, don't try to sell your product, but find out if there's any demand for the product out there because most startups fail because there's no demand for the product. Right. And, and so uh, there was, and then there's this question as whether you have a product market fit. Once you identify the markets out there, does your product actually fit that market? And so we were, we actually stumbled upon the organic crop area uh, through the i uh, program. We were thinking it would be more for row crops and that kind of stuff. But there's a big market out there for the organic in the, in, in the organics area. And that's probably how we are going to make this company scalable is to start by offering use licenses at you know use for organics and certain crops then use for the row crops or use for turfs i mean one of the other things that we found in in uh, the icor through our interviews was that there'd be a pretty big market for this in the golf course industry and in some places where uh, they just don't want weeds at all to ever appear like on uh, air aircraft runways and things like that the amount of horrible chemicals they put on aircraft runways is crazy we were able to when we were up in dallas and we were able to go to to uh dfw to the guy that was in charge of keeping their runways going and <laughs> he'd love he said he'd love to have a product like this because wow. they were right at the limit right at the allowable limit for getting uh, the runways cleared wow that's kind of scary if i had a dfw there's a lot of runoff. I mean, that's a problem. Uh, yeah, it all so. washes down into somebody's water somewhere. <laughs> yeah. 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 The reason why I want to live in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he was safe. He was a really good guy, and I think they did it safely. I did it within the EPA limits. Yeah. You know, that's actually one of the things that we were surprised by when we did the ICOR interviews was that a row cropper, you know, a guy in the Brazos Valley, right? is not interested in the safety or the organic component so much, the non-toxicity. Right. All they have to do is follow the directions on the package. Right. You know, if they follow all their directions, the EPA has already done all that work for them to figure out if it's going to be safe or not. Mm -hmm. So they have to have their own personal protection equipment and all that kind of stuff to, to uh, mix the herbicides and all that kind of stuff. If they follow all the instructions, they don't care about the toxicity of the product mm. because the toxicity has already been controlled for through EPA regulations mm -hmm. and OSHA. OSHA That's right. a great discovery right there. Uh, it's something that you know you wouldn't necessarily intuit, but it makes yeah. sense once you once you discover it, right? Yeah. How easy was that process for you? I mean, you're a scientist. You kind of mm. used to being in the lab. Was that was it easy for you to go out and talk to people, or did you was there like a learning curve? I mean, did you was it out of your comfort zone? Well, we had um, uh, a couple people on the team and um, I was kind of comfortable with it because I can talk a lot. And, <laughs> you know, and a lot of this thing is you kind of got to keep your foot in the door while you talk to people about things that matter to them. Uh, right. You know, you get the conversation going and you can't really be shy about it too much. And so there were people on the team that were more shy and, and, and I think they, they got much, much better at it over the time of the uh, uh, interviewing process. And so it's about six weeks. And so, and with 150 interviews, we were able to get 
lots of uh, good uh, practice talking to people about this kind of thing. And we learned a lot about the, uh, about the whole uh, industry, which was uh, really important. And even with learning all of that, I mean, as uh, just being able to get an organic uh, herbicide registered uh, just varies from state to state. So there's all these regulations that are associated with organics that are different from other uh, herbicides that are managed by the EPA. So once it's listed by the USDA, California has a big organic herbicide um, um, certification system and, and it varies over state to state to state. So uh, we'd have to, we're, we would like to partner with some organic product distribu distributors uh, who know all of these things and then license it to them so that they can, they already have a, a customer base that they can go to. It will probably never be in the, in the business of mixing the herbicide and selling it to the farmer. We'll probably mm -hmm. give it to people, give, give the intellectual property to people so that they would, would um, uh, be able to do that uh, and, and, and make a big profit off of it. To keep focusing on the research and to continuing with developing and making new discoveries while somebody else takes the lead on getting it used and out there in the market. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. It's a di different way of doing business, you know. Yeah, well, the other organic distributors either have or they know people that already have this the stuff to mix it in and <laughs> to do all that stuff. So right, that's a really efficient way of doing it. And is Griffin. Griffin Biologics looking to do um, things beyond what you're currently working on in the herbicide market, or is, is this? Well, so we keep discovering new things about this. And so we're just in the process of putting together another um, uh, uh, disclosure oh, uh, really? that relates yeah. to this. Yeah. So um, yeah, it will keep, it will keep going. Uh, I think that uh, as we realize more of the mechanics of how, for instance, sterols get around plants and what they're in, what they're important in in terms of germination or growth of the seedling or even flowering or some of these other things. I think there's um, other patents that we could make uh, that uh, will uh, uh, potentially be useful for people out there. But again, we probably don't want to be the manufacturer per se. We just right, want to right. be able to share the intellectual property with other people or sell the intellectual property to other people. So um, you did the i and then you applied for the Innovation X grant, correct? Right. So the Innovation X grant um, is, has, we've extended some of the experience that we had with i to undergraduate and some graduate students. And uh, um, the idea behind this was um, originally that the students would actually get out in the field and work with us a little bit, but it's fall. And we have this kind of lockdown mentality right now where it's hard to get people out there. Right. So what we decided to do was for the first semester, we took this kind of novel approach where we wanted the students to get the same feeling that we had while we were doing the i -Corps. And that was, they had to have a product, but they didn't know what the market was for that product. And so the product that they, we decided that they had was the skills they get at Texas A&M. Hmm. You know? And so now the question is, 
are there companies out there that want to hire them right. because they have that value? So they have to go around and ask what the value propositions are out there, what their value is to potential companies. And it's been really interesting. We have chemical engineers, we have a whole bunch of, we have biologists, we have egg, uh, uh, planty people, um, marine biology people, all, all different kids at various levels right. in it. And they're all interested in getting a job when right. all this is done. And so we're trying to get them to go to the second level, you know, where you go to the HR people initially and they say, oh, we want a well-rounded person that can right. communicate well. And of course, that's what everyone says. But wh where's, where's the edge? What do people really want? What, what is it? And you can usually only get that when you get past the HR people where you're kind of communicating with those. And they're learning about that. And so they've had a lot of interesting uh, experiences so far that are very, very similar to the i experience. And, and we can use that analogy of their product yeah. Or, and, and, and they're essentially making their own business of them <laughs> right. in, in this uh, startup. And the customers are they're all starting up. Yeah, they're discovering what their clients want. So are, are, are some students switching majors based on what they're finding? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no jobs there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, we, we, I, I think they're refocusing their undergraduate curriculum a little right. bit, maybe not switching majors completely, right. but uh, knowing what better courses to take. And right, to pick up at least it. those uh, ancillary skills that would allow them to play a little bit toward that market, whatever it might be. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. I think it's a great, it's not only a cool application of, of the process, but um, from, from what I've seen from the time that I went to school, which was right on the cusp of getting an education for education's sake was valuable. And it's really just a high level trade school, you know, that you're, you're trying to get a job with this. I was right in the, on the cusp of that. Um, that's, I think, fully flipped over that the value proposition of most higher education institutions right now is jobs, right? There's, there, there are outcomes. Uh, and um, so looking realistically, at what those outcomes might be as opposed to the pipe dream that you have in your head or that you maybe are selling your parents on um you know that's that, that's that's incredibly valuable i love that idea well and it also gets people to be more independent um because a lot of the people are just uh doing what their parents told them true you know yeah right. oh go be a doctor go be a lawyer you'll make lots of money, you know, and, and right. the parents probably don't know anything about the field, you know, but they know that who's ever a doctor or a lawyer probably gets adequate money to do what they're, what they're doing. But, and so, you know, you, you, I see a lot of people like that in biology where they're majoring in biology because then they can apply to medical school. But, you know, the trick is that medical schools accept people from all over the place, not just biology. And so it's kind of, uninformed un, uh, it's an uninformed approach to getting uh, what you want out of life so uh, that's that's the other thing I <laughs> assigned to the students was a uh, um, a psychology course on which is through Cor Coursera right. we're not supervising this at all I just kind of gave it to them as a as a uh, uh, background information, but it's called the science of well-being, and it's a really cool course by this psychologist at Yale, who talks about 
what is it that makes people happy? And you know, when I'm, t I'm telling them that they're going out to try to find a job, what is it about the job that's going to make you happy? You know, is it more money? Right. And the answer is probably no. <laughs> and right. what is it about it that actually uh, makes you happy? And actually, one of the things that I find completely gratifying about this whole commercialization aspect is um, I can see a way that my research helps people. And that, that makes me happy. Is that Paul Bloom at Yale? Is doing that? No, it's a lady. I forget oh, her name. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I can send you the link. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I really like that. Um, I think that's we've heard that from a lot of inventors um, that we've had on the podcast about you know they love their research, they love what they do, but what really makes them happy, what really keeps them going, is is knowing that they're doing something that's having a positive impact on the world. And um, I mean, certainly, it, you know, it sounds like what you're doing is important. I mean, it's important for people to have plants that, you know, aren't going to kill them because there's some sort of chemical on you. Yeah. Well, and then we don't kill everything else. I mean, right. some of what we do actually is so interesting. We're dealing with this chemical in a plant, but it turns out that that chemical it's not made by insects and insects require it. You know, insects can't make cholesterol. Ah, and, see, I and, thought and, when all the insects were eating all the sterols, I thought they were, had a cholesterol problem and they were just trying to lower their own cholesterol. <laughs> they, they need the sterols. Gotcha. And so they go in and they eat oh. plant sterols in order to make the molting hormone. Interesting. And if they don't get the sterols from, from the, uh, plant then they don't molt and they'll never get to the adult stage and so that's actually one of the future patent applications that we're looking at is how to use this as a um, as an insecticide basically right. yeah yeah same, same, the same way just not letting them get big enough right yeah right right that's bad yeah we, there's other ways you know conceivably we could make some plants more like the weeds more tasty <laughs> and have the crops right. less tasty right. and then you could you wouldn't have to go around killing all these bugs you could just have them eat your your enemies yeah <laughs> right. well i can see that being um, like an incest or pesticide or whatever that would be good like indoors people have um like pets that you know they want it they want to protect their plants they have inside but they don't want to do harm to their pets if they happen to eat the plant that you sprayed it on, but it would help with things like fungus gnats and other insects that are growing on plants, you know? Oh yeah, well, people can't use malathion, for instance, uh, in, in, their, in any places where there's fish. <clears throat> and uh -huh. yet it is one of the more popular insecticides around. That would explain Same. how my fish keep dying, but. <laughs> well, uh, you also don't, you don't want to use the uh, public water for. <laughs> we we have we have horse troughs out on our farm, and they have a well. They they use well water, and because they're great big horse troughs, they easily generate lots of mosquitoes. Right. And so we put little bitty feeder fish, little bitty right <laughs> goldfish in there, and they get like this big. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, just, you put on. 
PetSmart and you get the little bitty goldfish and they get really big and they're really pretty. And uh, they cost 65 cents. But if you use uh, uh, city water, they all die. Well, it's chlorinated to an almost impotable level, isn't it? The chlorine yep. levels are, are that high. Chlorine levels. Here yeah. we are talking about how bad college station water is, and I'm I'm still sitting here like I like it. Yeah. Beth Beth's from College Station, and so she she grew up on this. But I got to tell you, if my if my wife takes a shower and like I you know give her a hug or something, and she smells like she was in the pool. Uh, yeah. The chlorine that's not just on your skin. And my one son, mm -hmm. the one that kind of finished high school early as well. He looked all into it and he said, I think we're like 0 0.01 dad away from the EPA saying we have impotable <laughs> water. <laughs> like, wow. So uh, so that's that's good to know. What I like to know, what I, I was wondering too, on a on, on large land, if there was a mosquito problem, my my solution was going to be to get rid of all of the water sources, but I love your idea better, which is use the water sources almost as a trap and let the fish eat them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it works great. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I often find that adding things that are poisons and things like that to get rid of pests can work so much against you. You right. know, the, um, there, yeah, you do have to have some tolerance for critters sure. for biological control. Right, right. <laughs> like uh, we have swallows, swallows that make nests all over everything in the summer. And they're great at keeping down all the flies and everything, but you have to have tolerance for the barn swallows and them right. messing up the side of the house where they're where they're making their nest and stuff. Right, right. That's a that's a good reason to have metal, a metal building. You just hose it down. Yeah, and be, and be all, you'll be all fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you have you mentioned a book that you either just finished or about to finish you said one of your colleagues was reading it on on imaging is that correct yes oh, yes it's, talk a little bit about that yeah it's called imaging life photography microscopy biomedical imaging and image analysis so it includes all those things right what was the first part of the title i kind of got you cut off a little bit it's, it's called imaging life and the first part of the title the subtitle is I cover photography, microscopy, um, biomedical imaging, and uh, image analysis. So the it's actually a, written from a completely kind of applied digital point of view. So when I was learning how to do imaging, we were using film. We <laughs> there was a completely different way of taking pictures than we do now. But this I mentioned film in the introductory chapter is an old technology that is interesting historically. But other than that, the whole book is about digital imaging. And uh, we, I cover uh, different kinds of uh, cameras, different kinds of uh, um, ways of acquiring images. I have a chapter on the eye, that kind of stuff. But then I also have uh, about a third of the book on uh, image uh, uh, processing and analysis. And then the last third of the book is on uh, more um, sophisticated modalities. So one of the problems that I see is that people, for instance, when they graduate from, from biology uh, here, they often don't know biomedical imaging. It's usually the biomedical engineers that actually teach biomedical imaging, like MRIs or CT scans or, or ultrasound. 
And so I have all of that covered in the book too, where they actually learn that. And, and I'm trying to do it all in one voice so that you're not having to go to one website and another website and another website to try to do it and, and have it interconnected so that I can say, well, back in chapter six, you learned about this and here we're applying it here in chapter 13. So it, it actually makes a, a cohesive unit by which people can learn about imaging. So besides doing like a full color Mandelbrot set and like putting it up on your wall or doing like a CT scan or something like that for medical purposes, what would imaging, like how would we be able to use imaging in biology and in, in the sciences? Well, so um, actually almost a lot of research is almost completely imaging based these days. So okay. it, 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 for instance, um, as I was talking about cryo-electron microscopy, is able to see single atoms now. Right. So you're actually able to take, purify a protein, put it under an electron microscope and actually see the individual atoms in that protein. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And so I talk about that a little bit, but the other thing that is very cool is that we think of CT scanning, this X-ray scanning that we have right. for coronavirus and all that kind of stuff. There's been some amazing recent uh, work in that. And uh, one of the other X innovation projects is uh, Heather Prestridge's project where she's looking at micro CT scanning of um, uh, her whole biodiversity collection. So they have a biodiversity collection of all these stuffed animals and all these things in jars. You go into that area and it's kind of like the room of prophecy in Harry Potter where you're walking down. <laughs> I've, I've walked into there before and you've got, yeah, you've got some strange creatures in there. <laughs> <laughs> But, but they, they take these little fish or whatever, crabs or turtles, and they put them into a, a CT scanner. And you have big CT, CT scanners, but for the little fish, you use these micro CT scanners. And they are being used all the time now for, for important 3D reconstruction of things. So they're not very, they're pretty good resolution. They have fairly high resolution. But if you're trying to look at all the connections and nerves in the head of a fruit fly you want to when you when you take that sample out and you're going to section it physically section it for electron microscopy you want to make sure that there's no flaws in that head that you right. have fixed and so micro ct is great for that and so uh, neurobiologists that are now learning about connectomes of things use micro, micro CT a lot, but they're also used for biodiversity where now you can actually look at the bone structure without dissecting the fish of all of these different uh, fishes. And so Kevin Conway, who works over in uh, wildlife and fisheries, he looks at all the different speciation going on and you can actually get really interesting differences between different species of fish. It's only really apparent on the basis of their bone structure. That's wow. cool. Wow. And you said um, a lot of students don't know how to do these kind of this kind of Im imaging. You said you, you teach a lab that teaches your students. And we were talking about yesterday how all this has, uh, you've been able to move it over with we've been in you know, COVID and labs really haven't been open. So talk a little bit about how you're, you've switched your lab to online or, you know, hybrid or whatever. Right. So um, I'll be um, 
teaching hopefully the the imaging class next spring as kind of a hybrid thing where we have uh, lab pairs and one of the two pairs will be there every other week. And I think that actually is good because we can they can zoom with each other while yeah. they're doing doing it. And that actually puts different people in the in, in the driver's seat every every other week. And I find that when you have a lab pair, there's usually one person that's the note taker and one person that's the doer. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, and, and so I don't this gets them out of that um, situation. So it's actually kind of good that way. I mean, some of these uh, uh, distance learning components are good. So in the I actually have a lab in advanced cell biology this semester that we're doing completely online. And so what we had to do was reimagine it so that we could um, give them a good um, uh, theoretical and hopefully practical uh, um, knowledge of how to do laboratory work in cell biology. And so we expanded the course actually because we knew that they weren't going to be coming into lab and doing the labs. We expanded the course to include a very heavy component about experimental design. How do you actually design a good experiment so that it's so that you have really robust results at the end? How do you validate all the components of your experiment? And how do you ask the question so that you aren't unintentionally biasing your own work? What happens all the time is if you're doing hypothesis falsification, you win if you falsify your hypothesis. But on the other hand, no one will give you money if you have negative results. And so consequently, you need to have right. a model building kind of approach. And this, this book that we have by David Glass on it really does a nice job of setting up these different experimental models and how they are addressed by asking questions rather than just stating hypotheses. You still need to know hypotheses. You need to, to convert your hypothesis into a question but, and, and vice versa. But uh, uh, it's really more of an open-ended questioning thing where you are learning about the system rather than just disproving your hypotheses as you go along, falsifying your hypotheses as you go along. And the kids have liked that. I, th- I think they've enjoyed that part. And um, uh, we moved them through with uh, guided inquiry on all the different organelles inside uh, a plant cell and how they work with each other and how they move. The cool thing about plant cells is that, you know, the plants don't really move very fast on the outside. But if you look with a microscope on the inside, and you might have seen this in introductory biology or something like that, you have this cytoplasmic streaming going on. And it's kind of hard to see um, if in a regular plant cell, uh, you have to be able to see the individual organelles pretty clearly in order to actually see all the streaming that's going on. And one of the worst thing I've ever, I, one of the worst things that happens is that you give people a bad equipment or you give people dead creatures to look at when they're supposed to be alive. And then they look at it and they think they're failures because they can't see what's supposed to be happening there. And so I think we've completely overcome that part where we, as we're going along, I, I can troubleshoot, and so we do it again, and then we fixed it, and so that that works. But now, the whole 
final part of the class is them just building an experimental model and suggesting to us what kind of experiments we should do. So the experimental model is a, a based on a discovery we've made recently in the lab, where if you shine a certain wavelength of light onto this junction between a chloroplast and the endoplasmic reticulum, the plant lights up with a calcium wave. It's, kind, it's actually almost the same kind of calcium wave that you have when you have a a sea urchin egg or something and it fertilizes, uh, a sperm penetrates it, it right. generates a calcium wave through it. Sure. And people hadn't seen this calcium wave before. And so we're trying to figure out what the downstream events are in this signal transduction pathway that the calcium is uh, acting as a messenger for. So um, that's fascinating. They're coming up with great hypotheses and, and models for it. And it's fun. Wow. That's so cool that that's done online and you know listening and hearing about courses like that makes me want to go back to school yeah. <laughs> no, I, actually i want a professor like you though that really you know uh, teaches me how to ask these questions as opposed to just learning a linear sequence because it seems to have helped you in uh, i can see in your thought process even like let's make the weeds tasty you know you're asking <laughs> questions about what are what are solutions uh so uh it must be a fun course. Uh, any students that are, are watching or listening to this, you might want to look into Dr. Griffin's uh, uh, labs or, or courses on that. Yeah. What's, what's next? What's uh, next for you as far as um, moving forward, either with the with Griffin uh, Biologics or for you personally within your own research? Well, so we're just in the process of applying for a uh, SBIR or STTR grant from NSF. Okay. Uh, the nice thing about going through the I-Corps is that we we have established a product market fit, which is a good thing for the SBIR, STTR. Uh, we have some kind of track record going into this. And um, so now I'm, I'm kind of learning how to actually build a company. Uh, you right. have to have some kind of company there in order to hire people and make a payroll and all that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm working on that. I'm trying to do it so that I don't have to pay a whole lot of other people to do it right now. So it's a pretty steep learning curve for me. And uh, my uh, assistant director, who is my graduate student and now I'm postdoc. Um, so um, that's that's a, a big part of it. But the other side of it is that uh, I, I've been gratified by some of the outcomes of some of these uh, courses that I've been teaching. So one of my graduate students took this cell bio, advanced cell biology course, and um, she she's just really kind of carrying this whole project forward. She's my TA in the class this year, and and uh, she's uh, asking cool questions and getting the students to be, uh, you know, there's kind of a barrier between the professor and the student. But if you have the TA kind of in between there, that can actually facilitate a lot of discussion and stuff like that and she's doing great with that that's good so, good to so define too plug um some sbir resources i know they have a ton of resources online but um our office with uh tees we're hosting an sbir workshop in the spring so it's gonna, oh, okay. gonna be open to grads postdocs and faculty so you know i i can send you information about that we're gonna it's gonna be in the spring, it'll be two hours a week over, I think, three or four weeks where we're going to have different topics, you know, all the way. We are going to talk about I-Corps because I-Corps is an important component of, 
uh, being ready to apply for an SBR and it really kind of helps set you apart from other applicants having gone through that process. So um, I think that's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for being with us this week. This was a really interesting conversation. And again, it was. Jack and I always joke that by the end of this, you know, a year after doing these podcasts, we're going to have new degrees and, yeah. and survey knowledge on all these different areas. Yeah. designing surveys. Yes. So um, Dr. Griffin, again, thank you for being with us. Um, again, I am Beth Duermeyer. I'm your host of the Idea to Impact podcast, and I also have my co-host, Jack Manheyer. And we will see you next time.